Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up on the program, we are going to listen to a few more of the details released this morning about the mass shooting in Nova Scotia. That news conference happening earlier today and uh, some new information released there. Also coming up on the program, if you own a small business and you, like many other small businesses, have had trouble making ends meet, the federal government has announced some aid today. We're going to talk to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business about that, about how far it goes and what some of the obstacles still are for small businesses. We're also going to find out what's happening as far as COVID-19 in the United States. And BC Hydro warning customers about an increase in scams. We'll talk about that as well. But first, let's talk a little bit more about what happened in Nova Scotia and the fact that so many people now are having to process this, having to try to come to terms with this mass shooting while already dealing with a pandemic. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Jack Rosdilski, Professor of Disaster and Emergency Management at York University in Toronto. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, yes, I, I, good afternoon, Jill. Uh, you've written about this and the fact that not only are we dealing with this incredibly sad and tragic story out of Nova Scotia, we're all doing it while many, while we're we're in the middle of this pandemic, while we're in the middle of these very strange times. Uh, what what is your takeaway, or what do you, what what have you written about to the fact that those two things are happening at the same time? Uh, Joe, I think you you are exactly uh, correct here in stating just the difficulty in processing the totality of events happening in a very rapid uh, sequence. Um, First, uh, our thoughts need to be with those persons right now who are suffering in Nova Scotia with uh, 22 people dead in what we now know is the largest mass shooting in Canadian history. But we know this is all taking place in the context of living in the pandemic with COVID-19. So uh, I, again, this is uh, responding to a disaster on top of an ongoing disaster is very complex. And and how do people, or, I mean, do we even know at this point, how do people compartmentalize and, and maybe put off what's happening with the pandemic or try to stop thinking about that while they process what's happening or what has happened in Nova Scotia? Unfortunately, we don't have a choice here. We have to process everything at once. And if we look at some of the uh, complications faced by COVID-19 with the mass shooting at the same time, uh, when we have mass shootings, we have deaths, we have uh, injuries, we have people being put into a healthcare system. And that healthcare system around Canada and then Nova Scotia is already stressed under uh, circumstances with COVID-19. We have uh, law enforcement and public safety officials who already have their hands full dealing with uh, various COVID-19 situations, then also having to deal with a very complicated uh, incident. We have the additional stress on residents and small communities in central Nova Scotia who are just trying to figure out how to process uh, what happened with the mass killings, but at the same time, stay uh, safe, continue to engage in social distancing due to COVID-19. And then we haven't even got to the point yet where how do we consider burying the dead? How do we have funerals? How do we have memorials? How do we go through the coping and uh, healing that's taking place in this uh, era of uh, social distancing? It's uh, it's, uh, uncharted uh, territory. 
which is an interesting point because we have been talking about that on smaller cases, people who have passed away, whether they've passed away because of COVID-19 or people that have passed away in other circumstances throughout this. And I've talked to people who have lost, uh, in one case, a friend who lost a parent and dealing with that. I mean, it is so incredibly stressful to deal with something like that when when everything is fine, let alone when you've got all of the added uh, protocols, the the distancing and the, the making it impossible to, to, as you said, bury the dead and have any kind of normal ceremony. Yes, and I, I'm speaking to you from the city of uh, Toronto. And yesterday we passed a very sad anniversary, uh, the two-year anniversary of another violent attack in Toronto, which was a uh, van attack on Young Street, uh, killing 10 persons in uh, April of 2018. And they, we could not have the normal gatherings and memorials we would have had on Young Street. So many of these uh, situations are shifting to virtual memorials in the uh, meantime. And that's, I think, what we're also seeing right now in uh, the Prime Minister's address this morning and the uh, moment of silence today in the events taking place this evening, trying to shift these activities where we would normally gather in person to some type of uh, computer-mediated format where at least we can get a sense of togetherness to help us cope. Uh, which is which is great that we're trying to do that and that those efforts are being made, but it's such a different thing. I mean, it's one thing to have a conference call or a, a, a meeting with an old friend or, or current friends on Zoom or some other platform. Much different trying to do something so sad and so somber. Uh, yes, it really is. But the bottom line here uh, is all of our safety right now is at risk under the situation of uh, COVID-19. And we know the importance of washing our hands. We know the importance of social distancing. We know the importance of not leaving our homes unless we have to. And the better we engage in these procedures now, no matter how difficult, I will mean perhaps in the foreseeable uh, months, the situation can begin to improve, improve around Canada. In other words, we don't want to lose any progress that we have made so far in trying to lessen the impacts of this pandemic. Uh, do you think we will learn from this? I mean, it is a lot happening all at once, but do we then learn how to better cope or how to respond to disasters? Oh, yes. I think there are there are a lot of uh, questions being uh, raised here. Uh, uh, we've heard uh, a, a lot about uh, the warning systems uh, right now in uh, Nova Scotia and how warning systems may have worked or did uh, not work. Uh, we're all having to learn new ways to cope, to survive, to get to the uh, next day. And as uh, previous generations have dealt with um, very difficult situations, uh, for example, looking at how Londoners uh, dealt with the Blitz during World War uh, II, uh, perhaps we are in our own time of suffering and sacrifice where we need to find ways to get through this as best we can as uh, other uh, cities and other nations have had to do that, unfortunately, at various times in history, either due to violence, uh, warfare, disasters, plague, or pandemic. All right. We will leave it there. But uh, thank you so much. Great to have you on the program. Have a great rest of your day. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, an announcement earlier today about small businesses and some relief for small businesses. The Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, announcing a significant rent relief for businesses that can't afford to pay landlords. The federal help is expected to lower rent by about 75% for affected small businesses and will be uh, provided in partnership with the provinces and the territories. So what will this actually look like and is it enough? for small businesses that are really struggling during this COVID-19 pandemic. Let's bring on Muriel Protzer, Senior Policy Analyst for BC with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks so much for having CFIB on. We're really happy to be here today. Well, thanks for coming back on to respond to this. What is your first response to the details that were announced today? Yeah, well, what we're seeing is um, some really good things, things that we were advocating for in the rent relief program from the federal government, but also a few concerns from us. Uh, We are happy to see that it is rent forgiveness. It's not just a loan to landlords. So that is actual meaningful relief, something that we definitely wanted to see. And it is significant relief. This is 75% reduction in the cost for the tenant, and it will cover those three months, April, May, and June. Very happy to see that retroactive to April's way. But that being said, there are some concerns from us still. And what are those concerns? Well, right now, uh, we're not sure what the application process will look like for landlords to obtain this loan. And if it is onerously complicated, um, we won't we would not want that deterring landlords from applying to this. Um, And we are also seeing that landlords are expected to forgive 25 percent of the cost of rent themselves. Um, We're hoping that this doesn't uh, provide a disincentive for landlords to apply. And also, uh, lastly, that businesses must have seen a 70% revenue reduction. Um, So this is still excluding many businesses who have seen significant losses. We've talked to many small businesses across British Columbia that have seen 50% drop in their revenues. That's still half their revenues. That's a lot of money that they're losing out on that will just miss out on this program entirely. And so that was one of the issues with one of the early earlier announcements as well was you for the wage subsidy or for for some of the help you had to prove year over year at least a 30 percent drop so do you have a clear idea with this 70 percent drop in revenue compared to what or is it since the beginning of the pandemic what do businesses have to prove so right now we see that is a 70 percent revenue reduction compared to pre-covid revenues i haven't seen whether or not that's compared to 2019 numbers of the same month or if we're looking at an average between january and february which is uh, again given that wage subsidy some flexibility that the federal government announced i think there's still um, a lot of things uh, that are uncertain about this program a lot of clarity still needed especially from the province themselves i haven't seen a news release from the bc government yet um, outlining clarification on how this will be enforced Um, so i think we're still waiting for additional details here Uh, Because as you said, too, that if you've lost 50% or say you've lost 60% of your revenue, that's still a huge decrease. And it seems like you would still need help. If you're a business in that scenario, you would need help as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's a significant amount of revenues. There's a lot of small businesses who are very much struggling, who are falling through the cracks. 
we've actually been surveying our members who are small and medium-sized businesses weekly about how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting their building. So we have some estimates on how many businesses will be able to access this rent relief program. We see that just over 40% of small businesses have seen that 70% revenue drop and should be eligible for the new program. But keep in mind, we are also seeing that over half of them say they're not able to pay rent right now without additional support. So there are still those businesses falling through the cracks and we're still uh, issuing these surveys to our members. So we're hoping to get a little more clarification on, okay, where can, where is there some wiggle room here in the program? What kind of recommendations um, can we make to the government still? Uh, We've seen in the past programs like the wage subsidy come out and then see changes made to it. So we're hoping there's still that opportunity for some adjustments to be made to the rent program. Because when we were talking about residential rents and landlords and tenants, there was the supports put in or the the safeguards put in as far as an eviction uh, hiatus that you couldn't toss somebody out. And there were more, it seemed like there were more protections for renters. Is there anything right now that stops a landlord from if the lease is up or if it's a month to month rent from from cutting ties with a small business, with a renter, a commercial renter? As far as we've seen so far, uh, the B.C. government hasn't come out with any more enforcement measures to make sure that commercial tenants aren't evicted. We saw that almost immediately happen for residents, which is absolutely necessary during these times. But we have to think about the economic repercussions here, too, and ensuring that these small businesses aren't evicted during this time is as equally as important. Um, For comparison here, the Ontario government put out a news release um, along with the federal government's providing that clarification that in the rent forgiveness agreement between the impacted tenant and landlord, there would be included also a moratorium on eviction for three months. I haven't seen anything from the BC government clarifying that here in our province. I'd love to see some more clarification from them here. They have done already a lot to stand up for residents and uh, businesses during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd love for them to, to provide us with that clarification because what we need right now is certainty and hope. And are there certain businesses that are more affected? I know we've talked a lot about restaurants and the retail industry, but are there certain businesses or business owners that you're hearing from? Yeah, well, yeah, of course, uh, the um, hospitality sector being hit extremely hard right now. And also with tourism, we're starting to enter our summer months and so many seasonal businesses that may just not be able to open are those where they rely so heavily on the summer months for their their profitable months uh, who just won't see those revenues coming in this year. Um, from our survey data, we see, you know, earlier I just said that over half are not able to pay their rent without more support right now. That's uh, for the general response, the average. But when you look at sectors specifically like hospitality, three out of four are saying they won't be able to pay rent without support right now. That is the majority of those hospitality businesses who need support so um, so badly right now. And we've seen some, uh, whether it's, it was kind of the perfect storm in a bad way, that they were already maybe teetering, not doing that great, to have come out and said, we're shutting the doors, this is going to be it. Even knowing that this announcement today was going to come, saying even with help, the future was so bleak. Uh, do you anticipate we're going to see more businesses that shut the doors for good? 
Well, it's times of uncertainty right now. It's really hard to tell. I think that with the announcement of a federal support initiative and provincial for that matter, um, coming to fruition, coming into place like this rent relief program, I think that does provide some certainty for businesses to rethink, okay, if I am eligible for this relief, can I continue to see a future for my business and for my livelihood? But until we see these programs actually translate to meaningful tax relief or meaningful cost relief they won't know for sure so it's really important that when these programs are announced that the details are communicated clearly and that they get in place as soon as possible you know may's coming up really quickly right now it's just around the corner and so while it's good news to see okay april may june those months will be covered for this rent relief program uh, until that money is uh being trickled down to the small business owner in terms of savings uh, they won't be able to make those decisions for sure We are talking about the announcement made this morning. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying that rent relief for businesses that can't afford to pay their landlords is coming. The federal help expect to lower rent by about 75% or by 75% for affected small businesses will be provided in partnership with the provinces and the territories. And we've been chatting with Muriel Protzer, Protzer, Senior Policy Analyst for BC with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, I wanted to ask you as well, uh, what are you hearing from from your members, from businesses as far as uh, are landlords being sympathetic about this and trying to find creative solutions? I think for the majority of small businesses, what we've heard is that they do have good relationships with their landlords and they are confident that they will be able to reach agreements. Our survey data shows that uh, over 50% trust their landlord to be reasonable. But when looking at the flip side of the picture, we have about one in three saying that uh, they do not expect their landlord to be reasonable in this uh, situation. Some saying they feel that their landlord um, would rather not go through the process of applying to the loan program and would in fact uh, be okay even if the uh, tenant themselves uh, were not able to pay and had to be evicted in this stance in the most uh, severe of circumstances, I suppose. Uh, So there is certainly that concern that there may be some tension uh, between landlords and tenants over this program. And and the announcement today as well, some of the details that it it will apply to small business tenants that are paying less than $50,000 per month in rent uh, that have either temporarily had to stop operations because they can't operate during COVID-19 or that they've experienced a 70% drop in their pre-COVID-19 revenues. We talked about the the 70% drop in revenues. Uh, Do you think that is enough, though, to, to help the bulk of the businesses? What CFIB sees from our numbers is that uh, this is not going to help the bulk of the businesses. Uh, our estimates is that it will be just over 40% that should be eligible for this new program. But that's still leaving out a lot of small businesses who could really use access to this relief. Uh, do you think that BC needs a plan in that we've seen, not saying that we that we should open and, and do anything prematurely or do anything that would put safety at risk, but we are seeing a couple of other provinces, a Saskatchewan coming forward with its its plan saying this is how we hope things will unfold. Uh, unfold. Uh, in Terry, Ontario, the Premier there is saying he's going to come out with a plan. And again, nothing written in stone, but at least it does give people some idea on what to expect in the coming weeks and months. Would you like to see BC have a similar plan? 
Yeah, well, what we've heard so far from the provincial health officer in British Columbia earlier was a potential to reopen parts of the economy mid-May. Now, when that was voiced, this was before we did see a slight uptick in reported cases, uh, you know, with 25 new ones the past day uh, following days of 75 new cases. Um, So while it is concerning to see that small incline, I think it is important to have a longer term plan of when we can open the uh, reopen parts of the economy, at least, because for a lot of these small businesses, there's a lot of uncertainty. I think right now is a great opportunity to understand what is working for businesses who are still open, what small businesses who have elected to close, what they would need to be able to reopen their doors and for businesses who've been ordered to close, what kind of measures can the government Introduced to be clear in terms of what's needed for them to abide by any new rules or adjustments that we need to make to ensure we are flattening the curve. Right, because a big difference between, say, a nail salon or a hair salon that has been ordered closed, and for obvious reasons, it's not possible to do those businesses without being in very close contact with somebody, uh, as opposed to, say, a mattress store that's closed, but maybe it's small enough uh, or or it's done in a way that you could have people coming in, whether it's by appointment or or in, in safe ways. But then I guess that also opens up questions of even if you were to open up in that kind of way, is that enough to keep the business going? Yeah, you're absolutely correct there. I mean, what we've seen from some of the essential services, for example, like grocery stores, we see stickers on the ground now, uh, one-way arrows when you're having to go down the aisles. And uh, we'd love to get some more information, and this is what we will continue to do in surveying our members in terms of how that is playing out and our customers um, able to understand these new practices and are actually making that uh, physical distance between each other. And then, for your example of a mattress store there if it is by appointment um, or it can they have just a limit on the number of customers at a time these are all questions we need to be asking now uh, because you raise a really good point uh, we need to make sure that the measures we put in place work for these small businesses and they are able to operate profitably under these measures all right we will leave it there muriel always good to chat with you thank you so much for joining us once again Thanks so much for having CFIB on today, Jill. Really appreciate it and look forward to our next chat. We've been taking a look at what businesses might be the first to reopen their doors, ones that have closed down because of the coronavirus and because it's really not possible for them to continue operating and do so in a safe manner. Yesterday on the program, we were talking to a dentist, a BC dentist, saying they are actively looking at ways when they do reopen to make sure patients are safe, to make sure dentists are protected. It could look like different protective gear, not as many people in the waiting room, fewer appointments, everything's still being decided. Well, another group that is getting ready for some kind of new normal are BC chiropractors. And Angie Knott joins me on the line now, the BC Chiropractic Association Executive Director. Angie, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, I know a lot of people are really looking forward to this uh, service being reinstated, being back in some way. Uh, What do you see happening as far as uh, chiropractor offices reopening? Well, I think uh, like 
many other professions, and, and we've certainly been in contact with uh, many of the other uh, associations representing allied health professionals, um, whose members, as you mentioned, uh, the dentists and, and other similar community practitioners will be facing the same types of changes and challenges as, uh, you know, we all move back to, to treating patients. And obviously, our primary concern is, is safety for the patients, but also safety for the staff that are in offices and safety for the practitioners themselves. Uh, so that is something that we're, we're looking at. We're, uh, you know, surveying our members to see what their concerns are and, and how that will look. Obviously, um, we just like every other business and every other profession, we, we are looking at taking the direction from both um, public health officials and the Ministry of Health, as well as our regulators, who will be the ones kind of setting the uh, the tone for, for what that safety piece looks like. Um, and, and we also, you know, are still in that very much unknown of, of when this will all happen. But we certainly, um, you know, want to be as prepared as possible uh, when, when that does happen. And I think we're lucky in BC because uh, both Dr. Henry and Minister Dix have done, you know, a really good job uh, guiding us and providing uh, information. And, uh, and and so I think they should be commended for that. We, we talked to dentists yesterday as well about the fact that there is still emergency dental work happening in some cases. I know that's the same as far as chiropractors. They are able to perform emergency work uh, during this pandemic. What does that look like? Well, yes, we were definitely, you know, thrilled to see that that chiropractors of BC were deemed uh, essential and was still permitted to treat those urgent care patients. Um, as, as you know, uh, as with other health conditions, uh, conditions of, uh, you know, musculoskeletal in nature of the, of the, the muscular and skeletal system uh, don't stop <laughs> because there is a pandemic. And so we, we definitely have some practitioners who have taken on, on uh, those patients. And uh, but many British Columbians, as you mentioned, rely on chiropractors to help them manage and treat a wide range of uh, these kind of injuries and conditions. So I think uh, a lot of British Columbians, uh, myself included, are looking forward to being able to uh, to, to go back uh, and, uh, and and not just in those urgent care situations. But we've been tremendously lucky that uh, that at least in those in those situations where um, you know pain is causing people really um, so much issue that they can't uh, continue living uh, their normal lives, um, have been able to at least treatment. And, and that treatment, though, will that be the framework or do we look to the treatment that was offered, the emergency work as whatever was done in that scenario could be then done when the offices reopen as far as keeping people safe? I think that's that's a question we don't have an answer to to as of yet. Um, we really don't know what what that framework will look like. And uh, as I said initially, we will definitely be looking to the guidance of of public health and, and public health regulations, as well as what um, our regulator and and, and the other uh, BC health regulators uh, put out. Uh, it's it's not uh, the job of the association to come up with those directives. Obviously, we will be looking at best practice. Uh, but until we know what what that looks like, it's really hard to say exactly what it will look like. We you know obviously. Um, we will be looking at things like personal protective equipment, um, uh, which we're, we're certain um, based on some of the things that are coming out of other provinces. We know now that BC will not be the first jurisdiction to return, so we're hoping to be able to take the, law, the knowledge from those other jurisdictions and apply it here as well. Uh, which makes sense uh, completely because it is, I mean, pardon the pun, I mean, it is a hands-on practice. The chiropractor Absolutely. is working your whatever it is, the pain in the area that hurts you a lot of time. So that means neck the neck area, your face might be quite close to the chiropractor. Uh, so it would make sense, I guess. And, and on that sense, I suppose it's actually a good thing that you will be able to look to other provinces to see what they're doing and maybe maybe get guidance from them. 
Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, it's very much, uh, uh, you know, uh, while the, you know, it's been uh, it's been challenging. It's been challenging, obviously, for all British Columbians and and, and chiropractors are certainly uh, in in that boat as well. Um, one of the things that I think has been very positive that that's come out is the level of collaboration that we've had both with our profession uh, across the country as well as with with other allied health professions. And you know, we're all all working together to to kind of understand what uh, the new normal will look like. Like um, once we are able to start returning. And what has it been like financially? I mean, chiropractors' offices have been closed. Do, do they fall under the, any of the, the federal or provincial relief programs to help them out? Some do. Uh, some have not previously, so uh, a lot of the work that we've been doing, um, as, as I know have other, uh, you know, associations and other professions have been around advocacy to ensure that we do, that uh, anybody that has been, you know, significantly affected is, uh, is covered. And, and we're, we've been really pleased to see um, the, the speed with which the government has responded to those advocacy efforts um, as far as, you know, pointing out where, where the holes are and, and trying to fill them as best as possible. And there's still, we start, certainly still have some concerns. Uh, today's announcement with respect to rents, I think, um, will be a welcome one. Uh, it will still remain to be seen as we, we have not had a chance yet to communicate with members on um, how how much help that will be. But I know that rents were um, a significant concern, especially for those who have um, completely shut their doors. And I don't know if you can answer this or not, but we've been told mid-May we'll, we'll see something happening as far as restrictions, whether that's some elective surgeries being rescheduled. Do you have any sense on when we might see chiropractic or offices open in some way? We, we don't have that information as of yet. We, we, we know at this point uh, kind of as much as you do, and, and we rely on, on the daily updates of, of, the, of the Minister of Health and, and of Dr. Henry um, to, to guide us uh, as far as what we're doing. So right now we're just uh, preparing our, as best as we can for, for that eventuality, uh, but, uh, but we don't have any indication as to when that will happen exactly. Well, we have seen a lot of good come from people as we navigate this pandemic. Unfortunately, we've also seen people trying to take advantage of it. And BC Hydro is now warning customers after it saw a 350% increase in reported scams just in the month of April compared to the month of March. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this and explain what people need to be aware of when it comes to these scams is Susie Ryder, a BC Hydro spokesperson. Susie, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, happy to be here, Jill. Uh, it's unfortunate we have to keep talking about this, but good that we get the information out to, and make sure BC Hydro customers are aware. So what do these latest scams look like? So since April 1st, we've had over 500 reported incidents of scams targeting our customers. Uh, there's two main ones, and the first one is quite sophisticated. It's a phone and email scam. So customers will receive an automated call or a fake bill notification telling them they have an overdue bill and threatening disconnection of their service. And then customers are asked to call this uh, toll-free number back to make a payment. Uh, And then once you call this number, it connects to this really, really great replica of BC Hydro's phone system. Um, So it's quite sophisticated. And then fraudsters ask them to purchase prepaid credit cards or uh, deposit money into a Bitcoin ATM to avoid disconnection. So that, that one is very sophisticated. Uh, there's a second one that's a phishing scam that we're seeing. And so this is when customers receive a text message. It'll appear to be from Hydro. 
and it'll say you're eligible for a refund. Then you're directed to click on a link and submit your banking information so that you can get your deposit. Uh, and I, I've seen about 500 reported incidents uh, since April. And uh, in March, just as a comparison, there were about 100. And these estimates are pretty low, actually, because not a lot of people even report these scams. Don't They don't think to report them. So we do find that about 4 to 5% uh, of individuals do fall victim to these types of scams. Hmm. And so does Hydro ever call people? So we ask that if you are questioning the authenticity of an email, text, or phone call, that you should call BC Hydro at 1-800-BC-HYDRO or check your My Hydro account. But um, we do not collect credit card or bank account information over the phone. And we don't collect credit card or bank account information by email or text. So um, if we, right now, we are not disconnecting uh, any customers for non-payment because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so uh, if, you're, if you're being told that you're going to be disconnected, it's absolutely not true because we are not doing that right now. And that's not the way we send disconnection notices in the first place. Um, the first step is you would receive a notice by mail, and our customer service team makes many attempts via mail. Um, and so, no, you would not receive a call from us or an email from us. All right. And the, the first one, as you said, the, the phone scam is quite sophisticated in that you call back, and it sounds mm-hmm. like BC Hydro. And I guess the, the big red flag there is Hydro also would never, like you said, get uh, credit card information, but would also never ask for pre- prepaid cards or for Bitcoin. Never. No, we would we would never ask for that. Uh, we also don't offer refunds or credits through an interactee transfer. So with that second um, phishing scam, that's something to be aware of as well. Um, and so some of these scams have developed over over a few months, and we've been working with provincial and federal law enforcement for several years, actually, in some cases. Um, and these aren't isolated to BC Hydro. So uh, these fraudsters have been targeting utilities across North America. Um, so it seems to be quite a sophisticated web of scams. And we're just focusing on raising awareness so our customers have the information they need to protect themselves. So that's why we're putting out media releases and, you know, trying to inform the public. And, you know, if this happens to you, I know as soon as I heard of this, the sophistication of this scam, I reached out to my elderly mom um, you know, she doesn't have a computer and this it doesn't really, you know, understand the inner workings of her smartphone and this kind of thing confuses her. And so I guess our message is if you if you know someone, especially someone who's vulnerable to these types of scams, let them know they're out there. And that's why we're trying to get the word out there and, you know, tell your friends and tell your relatives that. Uh, this is something that's happening, especially those that are at risk. Oh, yeah, for sure. I know even a couple of people here uh, at the radio station got these calls. Uh, should people then, if you get one of these calls and hopefully you don't fall victim to it, you hang up or, or whatever, you just uh, just ignore the text, should they then call Hydro to report and to say, look, I just got one of these? Yeah, that's a good idea. Call uh, 1-800-BC-HYDRO and, and let us know or check your My Hydro account. Uh, also, something you can do is contact your local police department. Um, but yes, certainly do let us know. And I know that I personally received some emails from customers um, letting me know that this had happened to them. And I was very appreciative of that. And that when people inform us, then we're able to take action. Um, 
And as I said, it's unfortunate there are about four to five percent of, of people who do fall victim to these scams. And we want we want to lower that to zero, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, quickly wanted to ask you, too, you mentioned there's no disconnection happening right now because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as other help for people that are having trouble with their bills, what is happening there? So on April 1st, we announced the COVID-19 relief fund, and this is to help customers that are unable to work. Uh, or uh, those that have had to close a small business as a result of the pandemic. So it provides uh, eligible residential customers with a bill credit of three times their average monthly bill. And if you're a small business customer uh, that has closed as a result of the pandemic, uh, you can actually apply to have your electricity use charges completely waived for up to three months. And uh, you can apply now online. You have until June 30th. And it's bchydro.com slash COVID-19 relief. All right. Uh, That was good. I just wanted to remind people of that uh, as well. Susie, thank you so much for your time and for uh, making people aware that these scams are still happening. Thanks again so much. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, Jill. As you've been hearing on the news, the BC Nurses Union is raising the alarm about a shortage when it comes to personal protective equipment. The union saying that some nurses in this province are having to do things like share goggles, share face shields, and having to wear expired masks. Well, joining me to talk a bit more about this is BCNU President Christine Sorensen. Christine, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, hi. How are you? Glad Uh, to be here. Very well. Thanks again for doing this. Uh, How critical is it or how concerned are you right now with this uh, potential or this shortage of equipment? Well, we are concerned to hear that nurses at various sites are being asked to take some unconventional measures to, you know, ration or conserve personal protective equipment uh, and to reuse some pieces of personal protective equipment, uh, particularly pieces that we've never reused before that have always been single use. Um, but, but around goggles and masks, yes, that's been going on for a while that people have been reusing and sharing. And so when did this start? Because I remember talking to you not that long ago and there wasn't a concern about access to equipment. Uh, well, it has been an ongoing issue in a sense that, you know, it, we have been in a a worldwide shortage of personal protective equipment, and I do applaud the efforts of everyone to secure what we need here in BC. Um, but obviously, as the pandemic has gone on and we've had to continue to provide care, uh, we are using personal protective equipment not only in acute care but in our community, and we've seen in the numbers of long-term care facilities around the province uh, that have been identified as hotspots. Uh, and so certainly we are using up the personal protective equipment, and it is difficult to access. So we are running into difficulties across the province. And when we talk about masks being expired as well, what happens to a mask that, it would, that it's expired and, and no longer is, 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 should be used? Well, again, we're going under the guidelines of the company that produces the masks in this province. uh, I believe those are 3M. Uh, We do develop a pandemic supply here in the province, and we are preparing always for a pandemic. Uh, Those masks are stored and uh, are only activated when we need to. Uh, I have been hearing reports that that pandemic supply is now uh, coming into the regular supply, and nurses in some sites are being used to use masks uh, that are 11 years old and uh, have expired. Uh, expired according to 3M, uh, which is the company that determines the length of time that the mask is good for. Right. So the the concern there, I guess, would be that it wouldn't still work as far as it wouldn't be as, as good at keeping particles out or doing exactly what it's supposed to do? Well, again, a mask, we, we look for effective 
efficacy and fit. So we need to make sure that it fits the nurse well and that it does what it's supposed to do, which is filter out particles. Uh, and so if the company is telling us that there's an expiry date, uh, we follow the expiry dates for other things, including medications in our in our field and other things that we have. Uh, and so uh, I am concerned if these have been identified as being expired as at that date, uh, we question why nurses would be using expired product. Oh, for for sure, uh, and and obviously that would be not ideal for anybody. Um, has anything changed as far as who wears the the protective equipment or or how much it's used in hospitals? When we look at the number of COVID nineteen cases, I think there's some confusion in that our nurses. Uh, wearing this when there's the possibility of being uh, being exposed because there are cases in a hospital, or is it across the board because we don't know if somebody could be uh, exposed? Well, I certainly think things are evolving and changing. We've seen even directions from our uh, Canadian medical health officer about the wearing of non Uh, medical grade masks in public. So as the science is evolving and we're learning more about this, um, but also as we see the spread around uh, not only in a few acute care sites or a few long-term care sites and understanding that there's more community spread, uh, we we have those same concerns in our facilities. Uh, So, you know, in a long-term care, we're seeing more long-term care sites that are now needing uh, personal protective equipment. And nurses need access to the equipment when they need it. Uh, It can't be locked up, it can't be controlled, uh, and the nurses may make a decision at the point of care of a patient about what level of personal protective equipment that they need. Uh, We do need to ensure that our nurses are safe at all times when they're providing care to patients in BC. Uh, Which I think everybody would agree with, absolutely. I was just wondering if if part of the reason that we're seeing the shortage is because in cases where maybe this wasn't mandatory before, it's now mandatory across the board because exactly that, we don't know about uh, spreading it, people that don't have symptoms or that possible exposure. Right, and we are learning more about asymptomatic patients, people who may be carrying the virus uh, who don't have symptoms, those who are pre-symptomatic and those those who are symptomatic. So you are right, there's more nurses that are now wearing uh, non-N95 or the surgical or procedural masks in many more settings than ever before. Uh, But now we also have, uh, we've had large numbers of patients, not as much as some provinces, but we have had numbers of people who've come through that have either been um, considered possible positives to COVID or have been identified as positive to COVID, which requires the higher use of of medical equipment, including N95 masks to provide care. Uh, And with the the number of the occupancy in hospitals right now, has that led to, say, casual nurses or part-time nurses getting not as much work when when we were looking at all of the beds that were cleared out for the possibility of all of these cases of COVID uh, that haven't materialized? What does that do as far as the workload for nurses? Yeah, it's been an interesting shift in the last little while because, as you know, the very first part of the pandemic, there was so much effort put in what we call decanting or moving patients out from hospital back into community and long-term care. I hear from nurses who are working in those other areas, community and long-term care, that they're extremely busy, um, very, very busy, particularly the nurses working in long-term care with residents who can't be transferred back to acute care right now and the care is needed to be provided in the long-term care. In our acute care facilities, which are running in around 65% occupancy, Uh, it's interesting because while there are less patients, those are some of our most acutely ill patients now, and those nurses are doing types of care that we often have not had time to do before. There's a lot more emotional care, supportive care for these patients who are isolated and away from their family uh, at a very vulnerable time in their life. And for those people who are in ICU or on ventilators, uh, this is a really heightened level of care, Uh, so it is still extremely stressful for the nurses. 
There is less work for some of our casual nurses right now in acute care, uh, but we do anticipate if uh, things change and we start bringing more people back in for for uh, um, elective surgeries, uh, we'll be right back into the same situation we were before, which was high workloads uh, and short staffing. Uh, and and how is that stress level as for nurses? Because you raise such an interesting point. And in. here we are in this scenario where families, uh, for in many cases, can't come in, visitors can't come in, and nurses are are left are are in these positions where they are in many cases the only people the patients are seeing and taking on that role as well. That's got to be stressful. Extremely stressful. And what I'm hearing from a lot of nurses is this sort of psychological or moral distress trauma that's happening now. In the, in the thick of the time, there was the adrenaline. We're all, you know, excited. Uh, lots of camaraderie. We're going to come together. The fear of the unknown. Um, but now as things have settled down, people are realizing the trauma that this has really caused. They are also worried about family and friends and, and people in the community. And now as we all realize, we, we need to continue a new normal of how to maintain our numbers extremely low in this community. Uh, it's always stressful for the nurses. We never know what will be coming through our door now. We don't know if patients are positive when they come through. Um, and this is a heightened level of, of anxiety. And then on top of that, you know, we worry for our patients who are isolated from their families uh, while they're sick, and they really do need that extra level of support from the nurses. All right. Well, we will leave it there and uh, hope that the shortage of the equipment that that has worked out and and doesn't become an even bigger problem. Uh, But Christine, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your day. Thanks for being with us. Well, I think a lot of us have turned to trying to get more data and information and try and look at trends. And we certainly tune in every day at 3 p.m. if we can to learn from Dr. Bonnie Henry the latest numbers when it comes to COVID-19 cases, when it comes, unfortunately, to people who have passed away and to people who have recovered. But why is it important that we make sure the information we collect also includes people who are most marginalized? Well, my next guest is here to talk about that, Dr. Farah Shroff, professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health. Thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be here. Uh, are we missing the, the, the important or some of the important parts of collecting this information at this point? It's always a good idea to know the full dimensions of a problem in order to solve it. So if we would collect more robust and more granular data on who's living and dying, so both of, both of those things, um, with COVID-19, we would have a, a more clear picture of what kind of programs and action we could take. And so what parts are we not collecting now do you think that we should be collecting? It's a really good idea in a country like Canada to have a good perspective on ethno-racial, social class, and of course, gender. Um, gender is, is um, something that we don't talk about very often, but, but the gender spectrum we used to think was a, was a binary. We used to think of it was male or female. Um, but now we talk about gender as a spectrum. So there are people who are non-binary and people who are trans and people who are in between male and female. So that's another important one to consider. Um, Certainly, we've done a very good job in Canada of collecting data related to Indigenous communities. So we've typically, for decades, collected data on whether somebody was a status First Nations person, an Inuit, or a Métis. So now we just have to broaden that piece out. 
So we look at people of African heritage, people of Asian heritage, people of Latin American heritage, Middle Eastern heritage, to just try to get that a little bit more granular so that we get a sense of which communities are struggling with with this virus. And the good thing about being in Canada as opposed to other countries is that when we have collected that data in the past, typically our ministries of health have tried to make a difference in the form of programming. So we know that for HIV AIDS, for example, when we were able to get a good sense of how um, communities of African heritage in Canada were living with HIV, that members of the African heritage community came together, worked with governments, received funding, and did culturally appropriate programming. And that's exactly the kind of thing that helps. When community members get really involved from the very beginning, and then they see the program through, they run the programs, they evaluate the programs. Uh, interesting. And when you talk about that, because this virus seems so different in that it started with people traveling and with people uh, traveling and spreading the virus before it became community spread. So on the one hand, you would look at, I imagine, uh, where the different countries where people were from who have it, but then also the community spread, which groups or which parts of the population were most vulnerable. Exactly, exactly. Typically in countries in the global south right now, it is people who have a lot of financial um, power who, who are the ones who are bringing the virus to, to the countries um, because typically it's those financial elites who travel out of the country. So the, mass, the vast majority of the population is not bringing the virus to the country. But once it's in, then we look at issues of crowded housing, high-density populations, all of those kinds of things, particularly for airborne vectors, spread very quickly. So that's why in Canada we're really concerned about making sure that the virus doesn't get into reserves as much as possible. I'm sure you know that there's a reserve here in Vancouver um, and that people are at every entrance to that reserve, making sure that people don't get in unless they live there. And that's a great idea. Is there a concern with privacy when you start documenting or start asking people about their p- particular background in, that, in, in using that for data collection? There certainly can be a concern for privacy, um, but typically when that kind of data is collected, it's anonymous and confidential. So a good study should already guarantee anonymity and confidentiality. And so that way, we're not identifying individuals at all. Right. And does it matter then, I would imagine getting the information is one part of this, but then it's a question of what do you do with it in that, did we learn from, from HIV? Did we learn from SARS as far as what, what we do when we're, when we're faced with similar situations? Exactly. So what did we learn from HIV? We learned, for example, that gay male community members were amazing at mobilizing and working on research and working on a cure and at going to big conferences. Um, So we've learned that communities who are living with things like this are really, really impactful uh, when they work on solutions. So That's a wonderful example to learn from. HIV AIDS and the gay male community's response and their leadership in taking HIV from a death knell from uh, when it was originally identified in the early 1980s to 25 years later when it became a chronic condition. It's the first time we've ever seen that. And the 
the credit goes to the community who was affected and how quickly and how actively they responded. So if we can use that as an example, we'll be really far ahead. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Interesting take. uh, And we'll see how the the information is collected uh, in the future. Dr. Shroff, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Be well.